Genuine prayer involves personal confession and also intercedes for the sins of God's people. Genuine prayer hungers for God and His righteousness. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, Lord willing, we'll take this in two blocks this week and next week. This is a rich, rich chapter. As you know, we've been in Daniel for several weeks, hopefully for several more weeks. For those of you that don't know, just a brief iteration review. Daniel was captured as a teenager, about 15 years old, taken to Babylon during Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion of Judah in 605 B.C., He was a slave in uh, Babylon, but God gave him great wisdom. As you recall, we've been studying he was promoted over the years to be prime minister of Babylon and actually as a slave uh, functioned as the prime minister for a number of decades. As we have saw in uh, Daniel previously in the chapters, we found out that the secret of success was his prayer life and quite frankly, his obedience to scripture. He had an ironclad habit of praying three times a day on a schedule which I recommend highly to you. I didn't say I did it myself, but I recommend it highly to you. I think praying on a schedule is an enormously productive thing to do. The shower is a really good time for me. Uh, At any rate, for his entire adult life, he had this habit, and he was quite an obedient student of Scripture. So let's pick up the narrative. Today we're going to be looking at one of the greatest of the Old Testament prayers, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. And the first year of King Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now this chapter, Daniel 7, takes place about 538 to 537, within a year of Babylon's fall to Persia. Remember, Babylon fell on one night, October 12th. 539, and this occurs somewhere in that first year. Uh, It also occurred about the same time as the lion's den episode that was recorded in Daniel 6. So the fall of Babylon, Daniel in the lion's den, probably a year or so after that event, and this great uh, intercession occurred about the same time. Daniel's about 80 years old now. He's been in Babylon as a slave for 65 years plus, And this is the same King Darius that we met in in Daniel 6. Now, I want you to think about the context. This is a period of great uncertainty. Babylon really became a a regional power around 616 B.C., and it has now fallen about 85 years later, about 539. So we have one empire fallen. We have a new empire taking its place. There's a new king with new rules new army, and an even bigger empire than Babylon. However, as we're going to find out, God is the ruler over the realm of mankind, Daniel 4.32, and God arranges all things to accomplish His purposes. 
including the rise and fall of empires. So Daniel has been studying Scripture, which I highly recommend to you highly, and he knew, number one, that Israel had been sent into captivity for their sin. They broke God's covenant. God sent prophets to them and warned them and warned them and warned them. They refused to repent. Leviticus 26, right after they came out of Egypt, God very clearly stipulated the terms of Israel's relationship with him. If you want a relationship with me, Israel, here's the terms and conditions of that relationship. Leviticus 26, 27. If you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, I will lay waste your cities, I will make the land desolate, you, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your city becomes waste, but you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. Did you get that? That's pretty direct, right? Pretty clear that if you disobey, there are severe consequences. Destruction, desolation, exile, slavery to foreign powers were just some of the punishments that God says, if you disobey me, here's the outcome of that. However, God also said, if you repent... I will restore you, Leviticus 26, verse 40. If they confess their iniquity, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Now, this is just a classic illustration of the basic principle of Old Testament theology. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings discipline. Yes? Repeat after me. Obedience brings blessings, disobedience brings discipline. And you know that because you've told your children that, and your grandchildren that, correct? That's how the law of families work, because that's how the law of God's universe works. Now, Daniel's been reading specifically in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25.8 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, he's talking to Israel, because you have not obeyed my voice. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to you Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now, Jeremiah prophesied in Judah for four decades, and he had the same message for 40 years. Repent or God's going to judge you. This was not a new piece of news Leviticus happened centuries before then they came out of the land of Egypt. God has consistently said, if you obey me, here's the good things that will happen. If you disobey me, here's the bad things that will happen. Deuteronomy 28 has a whole list of blessings and cursings. However, what's new is this is the first time that God says how long your captivity is going to last. And Jeremiah prophesied this before Nebuchadnezzar showed up, and they rejected him for four decades. Human nature tends to be pretty stubborn. We generally don't learn unless we leave scar tissue and blood on the concrete. 
That's typically when we learn, and sometimes we don't learn then. So God told them through Jeremiah, before Nebuchadnezzar showed up, you're going into captivity for 70 years. And that captivity lasted for 70 years because Israel had disobeyed God's command to let the land lie fallow. Now, this was an agricultural society. God said, look, I want you to work six days and rest the seventh day. We call that Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath day. Now, he expanded that. He said, I want you to plant crops for six years. And on the seventh year, I want you to let the land lie fallow. And I will bless you so much during the six years, you'll have enough crop on the sixth year to feed you the seventh year when you don't plant any crops. I want you to give the land its rest. The land needs a Sabbath every seventh year, just like you need rest every seventh day. And they never once implemented that. See, that would require trusting the Lord. See, we look and we go, well, how foolish can that be? Well, many people in God's family can't even trust God with 10% of their income because they don't think he's smart enough to work with a 90%. You know, we think we're smarter with 100% than God is with 90% if we just gave him 10%, right? Just saying. So they never fallowed the land. And God said, okay, you've been disobeying me now for 490 years. I'm going to fallow the land for 70 years. Seven times seven is 490. The land is going to get its rest, and you are going into captivity. Leviticus 26, 34. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Now, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah three times. 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C. So Daniel now, it's about 538, 537, he says the 70 years are, we're getting close. We're getting pretty imminent here at this point in time. God put Israel in Babylon to discipline for their disobedience, but God also promised to judge Babylon for their wickedness, and of course they were conquered by the Persians in 539. Whatever God promises will surely come to pass. That's why Daniel started counting the clock and said, 605, 537, 530. We're getting within a couple years here where God is going to be uh, turning Israel loose to go back to their land. So based on that, verse 3, Daniel starts to pray. Verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Here's the principle. Pray with an open Bible. Pray in response to God's word and in harmony with God's will. Pray with an open Bible. Pray in response to God's word and in harmony with God's will. By the way, you won't know what his will is unless you open his word, because the will of God is found in the word of God. So Daniel 9 is one of the greatest examples of prayer in the Old Testament. If you want to take a quick note here, if you're looking for great prayers to study in Scripture, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 records David's prayer that God after God told him his throne would last forever and Solomon would build the temple. 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8 records Solomon's great prayer at the dedication of the temple. 1 Kings 8. Both Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9 are fabulous examples of godly prayer. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, all three. 
Daniel 9 is probably the model prayer in the Old Testament, just like the Lord's Prayer was probably, obviously, the model prayer in the New Testament. What's interesting here is God said, I'm going to bring you back in the homeland. I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. And so if God's promises always come to pass, then it begs the question, why bother praying if God's already said it's going to happen anyway, right? Why not just sit back and wait for God to do what he's going to do? Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel earnestly and fervently prays for what God already has promised to do. See, you don't pray to persuade God to do what he's promised. You pray to align your will with God's will. When we pray, we're not persuading God to come closer to us. We're praying because it moves us closer to him. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray what? Thy will be done, God's will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Will God's word will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Of course. So why bother praying? Because Jesus said, pray, thy will be done. We don't pray to persuade God. We pray to submit ourselves to his will. We pray in response to God's revealed will in the Bible. Jesus said the very, very last book of Scripture, the very, very last chapter, almost the last verse, Revelation 20, 20, 22, verse 20, Jesus said, Behold what? I am coming quickly. And in response to that, the very next phrase, the Apostle John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Right? Jesus, do what you've promised to do. God is the center of gravity. Everything, including us, revolves around him. He doesn't revolve around us. See, most of the time, we humans were self-centered. And we pray as if God is rotating around our will, right? We give God our agenda. We give him our brilliant plan all thought out. And we say, Lord, can you bless this mess? You know, and, and I, you know, just, just make it happen. And the Lord says, if I make that happen, it's going to be catastrophic in your life. So prayer acknowledges that God is the center of gravity and we rotate around him. So when we pray with an open Bible, we understand God's character, we understand God's plan, we get convicted of sin, it calls us to repent, the Bible cleanses us from sin, teaches us the love of Jesus, and teaches us to praise him. You know, it's been said that the will to win is crucial to competitive success. We have the Olympics coming up here shortly. What's often overlooked, it's not the will to win that really matters. It's the will to prepare to win that really matters. And that takes hard work all day, every day. I'll never forget, I'm dating myself here, when Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali fought for the world championship. And Joe Frazier said, what counts is not what happens in the ring. What happens at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're jogging through the snow and you're hitting the gym at, oh, dark 30 for months and months and months beforehand. What happens is when the spotlights are on, you've been doing your road work or you haven't been doing your road work, and it's going to show up in the ring, right? Chess grandmasters study and practice chess literally 10, 12 hours a day for years. Concert musicians practice six to nine hours every day. Olympic swimmers are in the water six hours every day. So Daniel is not a casual prayer. 
He's a committed prayer, and he prepares to pray, which is fascinating. Let's read verse 3 again. I gave my attention to the Lord God, to seek him by prayer with supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Here's the principle. Pay attention when you pray. God is worthy of your undivided attention. I was going to say something smart like don't multitask when you have God on the phone, but anyway, pay attention when you pray. It says, I gave my attention, I set my face, I fixed my gaze, I turned my face in God's direction. Daniel's obviously a fervent prayer. It, it means he was single-minded, he, was, he had passionate intensity, he eliminated distractions, he didn't multitask because God was worthy of his undivided attention. I read a true story the other day about a young woman who was in a receiving line to meet the Queen of England. Now, you know, when you're in a receiving line to meet the Queen of England, it's a long line. So she's in line, and she's in line, and she's in line, and she gets up, and she puts out her hand to shake the queen's hand, and her cell phone rings. And the queen says, you better answer it. It might be somebody important. God will never say that to you. When you're in God's presence, turn off the distractions. Seriously. Turn off the electronic devices, among other things. So Daniel says, I'm seeking the Lord. That's a single-minded pursuit, a single-minded pursuit. How many of you have ever watched nature movies ever? I'm a nut about them. You ever seen a cheetah chasing a gazelle? Running down a gazelle, tail in the wind and everything else, 70 miles an hour. That is a picture of single-mindedness. The only thing on the cheetah's mind is a gazelle. Daniel's only thinking about one thing, God, and I will tell you that prayer is enormously difficult work. Most of the time when we pray, our mind wanders and comes back and, you know, we're all over the place. That's the nature of human nature. David understood that, and the secret of David's life is found in Psalm 27.4. He says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Verse 8, he says, David says, God, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face I will seek. So it's not just saying, Lord, I'm going to seek you. It's doing something about it. And David and Daniel both made time with God a major priority of their life. As a matter of fact, it was the central passion that controlled their entire lives. They pursued God above all else, and of course it begs the question, exactly how did Daniel seek God? Well, he tells us. Through prayer, which is obviously communication with God, most people think that praying is very simple. I talk and he listens. Did you hear that? I talk and God listens. Well, you talking is part of it, but actually I'm going to suggest that it would be very prudent for us to listen to what God says first in his word, and then you pray in response to after we know what his thinking is. Daniel says, through prayer and supplication, supplication means a humble request for divine help. It acknowledges that, by goodness, I have some needs here and only God can help. Furthermore, he said, I was fasting. Fasting means abstaining from food, not to lose weight, but to focus our minds completely on God. It's not about earning brownie points, you know, I'm going to sacrifice this so God will love me more. 
It's saying I'm removing all the distractions in my life so I can focus more on God. If you're consumed with God, food is not that important. Furthermore, he said, I wore sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is, a, it, it literally is coarse black cloth, and it's made from goat's hair. It's pretty rough. It's pretty uncomfortable on the skin. I guess the closest thing would be like burlap. Or I, when I was a kid, we used to pick walnuts, put them in gunny sacks. You ever seen a gunny sack? Yeah, think of a gunny sack, and you, this thing's sewed up, and you don't have silk underwear on. You're wearing you know, gunny sack next to your skin. It kind of sandpaper your skin and keep you from becoming too comfortable, right? It, it would constantly irritate you. And it would, number one, remind you to pray, and number two, keep you from falling asleep when you were praying. I don't know if that's why they wore it, but I promise you if I wore it, that would probably help me stay awake. They also put on ashes and sat in ashes. Now, these are, of course, burnt wood ashes. When people were humbling themselves before the Lord and, and, and acknowledging their need for the Lord, they would often wear sackcloth and put ashes on their heads and sit in ashes because there was evidence of extreme humility before God, mourning, grief, repentance, humiliation. And even today, we symbolically do that. Some people put ashes on their forehead on Ash Wednesday, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an external sign of internal brokenness over sin. What I'm saying is Daniel did not pray conveniently. He prayed sacrificially and he made preparations externally to have his heart in the place where he took God seriously enough to get ready for the encounter. You know, to camp on what I just said before, if you were invited to meet the Queen of England... I suspect you probably wouldn't show up in your shorts. You would probably get dressed, you would probably show up, you'd probably, you know, look good, smell good, you'd be ready, you'd know how to talk to the queen or how she should be addressed, etc. And yet we waltz into God's presence like we're really casual about it. And he is our father, but he's also God. Now, if you're looking for examples of passionate prayer, of fervent prayer, of single-minded prayer in Scripture, I've got a couple you can do some homework on. Number one, Hannah prayed for a son. And it said she prayed with fasting and tears. Esther interceded for her people's deliverance from Haman. Haman was the Hitler of the Old Testament, wanted to destroy the Jews in Persia. She and her maidens and Mordecai and his friends fasted and prayed for three days. No eating and no drinking for three days. That's interesting. The people of Nineveh, when Jonah said, yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, it said they fasted and prayed, they sat in sackcloth and ashes for the king, all the way down to the slave. God heard their prayer and withheld his judgment. When Job was suffering, he sat in the garbage dump, the city garbage dump, covered himself with ashes, shaved his head, and prayed. When Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, it says he was so fervent in his prayer that the capillaries under his skin broke and he sweated blood. That is a medical condition, and it's an example of extreme stress. So how seriously do we take prayer? How seriously do you take God? That will determine your prayer life. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord! The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. 
We have committed, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Here's the principle. Genuine prayer involves personal confession and also intercedes for the sins of God's people. Genuine prayer involves personal confession and also intercedes for the sins of God's people. So how does Daniel view God? What's his view of God? Well, number one, he says, the Lord, which is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the eternal, self-existent, creator, sovereign, king of glory. And he says, God, my God, creator God, ruler, holy, perfect, infinite, eternal. He has the same view of God that Abraham did. Abraham is having a conversation with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, 27. And Abraham's going to intercede with the Lord to protect his nephew Lot. And he, Abraham says, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Well, when we come before the Lord, how do we see ourselves relative to him? If we have a view that God is our buddy, we'll treat him casually. If we understand that he is perfectly holy and we are perfectly sinful, we will respond accordingly. See, we will not see ourselves clearly until we see God clearly. And Daniel says, I confessed. It means homo legeo. It means to say the same thing as God says. It means to see yourself and your sin as God sees yourself and your sin and to agree with God's assessment of my attitudes and actions. And Daniel describes God, he says, the great and awesome God. Our culture says God is my buddy, God is my pal, God is my genie, God is my Santa Claus, God is the man upstairs, God is the big guy, God is the tooth fairy, God is my fairy godmother, God is the rich uncle, yada, yada, yada. Those all bring God down to human level. Anytime you see humans in contact with the supernatural in Scripture, they fall on their face and they have no strength whatsoever because they're in the presence of holiness. Now, God is the Lord. Lord means master. Lord means owner of everything. See, there's an infinite gap between holy God and sinful man. And that infinite gap should bring us to the point of humility and awe. And he actually uses that word, awesome. By the way, this word awesome is really overused. I've heard people describe Big Macs as awesome. I'm going, how hungry do you have to be for it to be awesome? Just saying. I'm not saying it's not a good sandwich. I'm just saying, what's awesome? Well, here's what awesome means. It means fearful wonder, dreadful admiration. Reverent terror. There's a serious sense of profound reverence and holy fear in the presence of God. You know, we use the term awesome to mean impressed. We see a spectacular fireworks display, or we go to a great concert and we go, that was just awesome. Well, let me tell you what awesome is. When God came down on Mount Sinai to meet with Israel in Exodus 19, It says, when he came down to the top of the mountain, there was thunder and lightning. There was a massive earthquake. 
The top of the mountain, the rocks, burned with fire and smoke. It says there was a trumpet sound that was so deafening, it could almost flatten you. And God told Israel, stay back from the mountain or you will die. Because my holiness has come down on the mountain and your sinfulness I will not tolerate. And Israel was terrified, and rightly so. They said, Moses, you go up to the mountain and deal with God. We're scared spitless because we know we're sinners and we can't stand in his presence. We have lost a sense of profound fear in the presence of holy God. And that's why our prayer life is so wimpy. However, God is not only a fearfully holy God, he's also a loving and faithful Father. Deuteronomy 9.7 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now this word covenant is interesting. Covenant has to do with the coming together. Really, it has two people or two groups of people that are bound together by an agreement. Our relationship with God is based on his initiative, not ours. None of us are here because we ran and sought God. Amen? We're here because God chased us down and initiated the relationship with us. Our relationship with God is dictated by his terms, not our terms. We don't tell God, God, um, we can have a relationship, but here's, here's how it's going to go. You're going to do this, and I'm going to do this. That's not how it works. God says, I love you, I'm on a relationship with you, and here's the terms of the conditions of the relationship. Now, you can accept or reject his terms, but you can't change it. That's the nature of a covenant. God always keeps his covenant. We generally break the covenant. God describes himself as being a God of loving kindness. Hebrew word is chesed, chesed. It means loyal love, steadfast love, unwavering commitment. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Most of you know the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no, not even a shadow of turning with you because God never changes. He loves us. He's always the same. Now, in contrast to God's holiness, Daniel is highly conscious of his own sin. I went and circled every time in the first 23 verses of this chapter, it says, we, our, us, 32 times Daniel identifies himself with Israel. He says, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have turned aside. And you look and you go, Daniel, I don't think you're rebelling, I don't think you're turning aside, I don't think you're sinning, you're following after God. He identifies himself with God's people, and he is aware that we all have sinned. Daniel is not arrogant. He doesn't say, those people have sinned and I haven't. He says, we have sinned. He's like a shepherd who lives among the sheep. He feels the pain of Israel's sin, and he identifies with them in humility before God. Interesting, Jesus said to a group of Pharisees, remember the group of Pharisees? They were a little self-righteous, like a little self-righteous. And they came to him and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, which they set her up for, shame on them. And they were going to stone her, according to the Mosaic law. And Jesus said what? Let him that is without sin throw the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and disappeared. Because none of us are without sin. 
So Daniel's now describing Israel's behavior. Israel's been in captivity for 70 years, and you go, that seems really intense. I mean, 70 years, the whole lifetime of judgment. What in the world did they do? Well, it says they've sinned, which means to miss the mark, an arrow falling short of God's target. It says they've committed iniquity. Iniquity is a very intriguing word. It means to bend. It means to twist. It means to be crooked. It means to go astray from the path. Iniquity means wicked character, not just wicked conduct, right? God's people sin, yes? You're God's people, you sin. Iniquity refers to a corrupt, corrupted character. We would say in the vernacular, that person's bad to the bone, right? I mean, they're just bad. Character is corrupt. It's twisted. It, it, there, there are people of iniquity. So iniquity is habitual, ongoing sin based on committed wicked character. And he uses the word wicked. Wicked means morally unrighteous. Wicked means an internal disregard for righteousness. It means God is righteousness and I could care. It also implies a metastasization. Have you ever noticed that sin never is not stable? Sin is dynamic. Sin grows. Sin is like cancer. It metastasizes. And that's what had happened with Israel. Daniel says, Israel is here because we're in captivity, because we rebelled. It means organized opposition to God's duly appointed authority. Israel had rebelled against God's commandments. God's commandments are divine prescriptions. You know, Megan's a pharmacist. If she gives you a prescription, what what do pharmacists tell us? Take the prescription precisely as I created it and take it until what? The bottle is empty. And how many of us do that? Huh? I'm feeling good. I'll save these for a stash. Bargain with my neighbors, right? You know what I mean? When you play bunko, you bring this, I bring this. I mean, you know, I know you got a little back pain. I got something for you, right? And come on, you know, we do that. We do that with God's laws too, right? We know, well, the Lord says don't commit adultery, but a little porn here and there, get real, it'll kill you because sin metastasizes. God's commandments are not optional, and they're not suggestions. He really does love us enough to say, don't step across the line, because you're going to die if you step across the line. He says, well, God told us all this, and Israel did not listen. Now, if you've ever raised children, or grandchildren, or you have nieces and nephews, or whatever it happens to be, you know one of the Best ways to dishonor somebody or disrespect them, just ignore them. Just ignore them. Just neglect to pay it, to tune them out. Refuse to listen to them. That's how God's people treated God's prophets. God sent prophets to them. He said, you change your ways or this is going to happen. And Israel ignored all of God's prophets. Shine it on, go away. I'm not interested in listening. Well, they, did, they understood perfectly well that a prophet only spoke what God told them to speak. So when they were shining on God's prophets and rejecting God's prophets, they're basically telling God, I'm not interested. Go away. That's dishonoring the Lord because he's the king. So you reject God's prophets, you reject God. Verse 7. Daniel's still confessing. He said, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries 
to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because why? We have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Here's the principle. Genuine prayer hungers for God and his righteousness. Genuine prayer hungers for God and his righteousness. So when you read this prayer, and I recommend you do spend some time on it, it's this huge contrast between holy God on the one side and sinful humanity on the other side. And Daniel's always saying, God, you're like this, da-da-da-da-da, and we are like this, da-da-da-da-da. And so he's contrasting the righteousness of God and the sin of humanity. Now, you know that sin separates us from God. We all know that, right? What we don't understand is how big the canyon is of that separation. I was watching a show the other day, and I saw the Grand Canyon. And let me tell you, it's miles across rim to rim, depending on where you're looking at that point. That's nothing. The canyon that separates us from holy God based on our sin is infinite, and it's unbridgeable by people. See, the essence of communication, the essence of prayer, is that it's communication between sinful people here and holy God here, and that gap is infinite. And the only reason prayer works is because God wants a relationship with people. Doesn't that boggle your mind? I mean, if I was God, I wouldn't want a relationship with me. I'm serious as a heart attack. I'm, not, I'm actually far worse than I think I am. And I think I'm pretty bad. I mean, it's pretty sad, you know. See, God hates pride. For those of you that were not in the morning service, you need to get there at 11 o'clock. You need your fanny kicked, and that'll get it done right there. But God responds to humility. Humility is confessing our sin, turning away from it, trusting Christ to pay our sin debt so that we can have a relationship with God. So God took the initiative to bridge that gap through the cross. Jesus said what? Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst after righteousness. And here's the promise. If you come with hunger and thirst and humility, you will be filled. Because God is righteous, anything that agrees with him is righteous, anything that disagrees with him is not righteous. Hungering for righteousness is really hungering for God himself. Daniel says, we've sinned against you, and so open shame belongs to us. Shame is something we've forgotten. Our culture almost is never shamed. I remember back in the day, I'd, I'd see the, uh, sometimes you see the newsreels of a, of a mafia person coming out of court where they'd be declared guilty you know, and they put their hat over their head or they look down, right, in shame because you want to cover your face. Uh, when our grandson screws up and I call him out on it, he puts his head down. He's, he understands shame. We as a culture have really forgotten that. We have forgotten to be ashamed over sin. See, Israel's sin was not a sin of ignorance. They had full knowledge and they still sinned, which is even more shameful. And it would result ultimately, in a 70-year captivity, which would end because God's full of compassion, which means tender kindness. He's full of forgiveness, which means God was willing to cancel their debt and pardon them, even though they had disobeyed. They weren't complying with God's command. They hadn't surrendered their uh, will to God because he has rightful authority, but God is still compassionate. That's why it only lasted 70 years 
and they didn't disappear from history as the northern kingdom did. Verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. As it is written, the law of the Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Here's the principle. God demonstrates he's right when he keeps his promise to judge sin and sinners. God demonstrates, I was going to say God demonstrates his righteousness, but being right is the same as righteousness. God demonstrates he's right when he keeps his promise to judge sin and sinners. Now, this word transgression he uses that term to describe Israel's behavior. Transgression means to cross a boundary. Have you ever been on a property that says no trespassing? And how many of you just blew right through that? Yeah, come on, right? We all do. No trespassing means, that means there's something interesting on the other side. I mean, why would they say no trespassing? There has to be something good over there or they wouldn't say keep out, right? I mean, you know. So it means to cross a boundary that's marked or climb over a moral fence that God has placed for our protection. A transgression is a presumptuous sin, which means I see the sign, I know what it says, and I cross the line anyway, right? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He's 50 years old. You think he knows? Yeah, he does it anyway. That's called a transgression. I know, I see the boundary, and I choose to cross it anyway. And there are consequences, and he lived with that for the rest of his life at that point in time. And the other frame of reference here, God says, as a result of the transgression, I promise to curse you. And I'm going to keep my promise. God said over and over again, if you sin and you refuse to repent, I'm going to curse you. I'm going to, number one, deport you from the land. And I'm going to send you into slavery and captivity in a foreign land. Daniel essentially says, God cursed us and we deserve it. Because we have refused to stop sinning. Do you think that has any application in today's world? So when stuff comes downhill, to put it nicely, there's a reason. Because this is us. This is us. And he uses the word calamity three times. You know, when Scripture repeats something, that means you better pay attention, right? He says this great calamity, disaster, loss, tragedy, ruin. Here's what's utterly terrifying. Despite Israel losing their land, their freedom, their temple, and their lives, and they're in captivity right now, and they still haven't repented. 
They've been in captivity for 70 years. And it begs the question, how much pain do you need to go through before you repent? I don't know. Some people have a high pain threshold, apparently, right? Repent literally means turn away from sin and turn to God. It's an interesting thought. You know, last week we sang a fabulous song. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Never forget, God always keeps his promises. All of them. Both to bless the righteous and curse the wicked. He will keep all of his promises. See, we say, well, I just want the blessings. Well, yeah, we all do. But God keeps his word, all of his word. So when you read the promises, remember, blessings come to the righteous. That doesn't mean discipline won't come to the righteous because God prunes the vine. But judgment on sin and sinners is absolutely part of his promise. Verse 15. Daniel's going to close this prayer and he says, And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the sins of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because of your city and your people who are called by your name. Here's the principle. Genuine prayer petitions God to forgive and take action for his own glory, not because of our goodness. Genuine prayer petitions God to forgive and take action for his own glory, not for our goodness. See, prayer depends on the character of God, not our conduct. If we went to God because of our goodness, he would never hear anything. He listens because he's a compassionate, loving, steadfastly faithful God. God wants a relationship with us, and that's what makes all this possible. So Daniel's asking God, free us from captivity, bring us back to the land, and we have done not one thing to deserve it. That's true. You're here today, and you and I have not done one thing to deserve it. We are here because of grace, because of God's unmerited favor. Daniel says, God, take action, because when you take action, it will demonstrate to the world your holy, powerful, loving nature. You'll demonstrate to the world that you keep your promises, that you restore Israel after their 70-year captivity, just as you promised us. See, when the world looks at the God, your God, who makes and keeps his promises to judge sin and restore sinners, what? They'll desire a relationship with that same God. That's why our behavior is so, so, so critical. Verse 20. Now, while I was still seeking and speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still in prayer, Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding, 
At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message to gain understanding of the vision. Here's the principle. God always answers prayer. His time, His way, His glory. God always answers prayer. His time, His way, His glory. I want you to note that Daniel is praying to the point of extreme weariness. You know what happens when I am praying and I'm extremely weary? I fall asleep. I serious. Marin and I pray every night in bed together. And about half the time, just being told like it is, I don't make it. It's like, you know, which you know what that tells me? Pray earlier, stupid. You know, like when you're awake. Of course, in my life, by about 9.30, it's time to floss because there's no brain cells working after about 9.30. Actually, if you knew me, you'd say, it's earlier than that, Brad. I mean, come on, you know, right? So Daniel's extremely tired, and he continues to pray, and he doesn't stop until he's interrupted by an angel. It's about 3 in the afternoon because that was the time of the evening offering. See, God commanded Israel, I want you to offer a sacrificial lamb twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. 3 p.m. was the time of the evening offering. By the way, there hadn't been a daily sacrifice in Israel in 70 years. There was no temple to offer the sacrifice. But Daniel still is praying on that same God-ordained schedule, sacrificial schedule. And God heard Daniel's prayer. How do we know he heard? Well, he dispatched Gabriel to show up and answer it. That would tell you that the prayer was answered. And he answered it when Daniel began to pray. It says, Gabriel said, when you started to pray, God sent me. With what you're supposed to know. And you think, well, that means God knew what Daniel was going to ask before he asked it. Yeah? See, God knows what you're going to ask today before you ask it, right? He also knows you're going to ask him to bless that food you're going to eat today at that restaurant that's not good for your arteries, and you wanted to do magic over that. I know. <laughs> so God told Gabriel, here's what you're going to tell Daniel, because I know what he's going to ask before he starts. That should give us comfort. It says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Is that not the truth? The number of times I say, God, I don't even know what to say. The Lord says, that's no problem. I know what you need. So the Spirit will speak for you. It's interesting. Angels are spiritual creatures. Yes, they don't have physical bodies. They show up and they appear as people, but they don't have human bodies. But they're not omnipresent. They're God's messengers. What's interesting here, it seems like it takes them time to move from point A to point B. Of course, if you're not omnipresent, moving from point A local to point B local means there's a time gap. I don't know how fast angels travel. That would be an interesting question, right? From the throne room to wherever God sends them. We'll talk about that next week a little bit. What's, what the message for us is real simple. God always answers prayer. We should never stop praying. And this is a very good model for prayer that God responds to. What's always interesting is when God answers prayer, you would say, well, what were they praying like so God answered the prayer? What was their character like? What was their attitude before the Lord? 
and you will always see God responds to humility. God responds to a broken and contrite heart. God responds to submission. And that's what Daniel was bringing before the Lord. Let's summarize and then we'll do prayer and praises. Number one, pray with an open Bible. Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. If you want to know what to pray about, read a passage from God's Word. You'll have plenty to pray about. Most of it will be, Lord, I'm not living up to what you're telling me in your Word. Help me to do that, right? So pray in response to God's Word. Pray in harmony with God's will. You want to know God's will? The will of God's found in the Word of God. Number two, pay attention when you pray. I don't know about you, but intense prayer is very difficult for me. It's very hard work to stay concentrated on the Lord. That's why sometimes I'll pray out loud. Because when my mind wanders, my mouth tells me your mind's wandering, right? Genuine prayer involves personal confession. It also intercedes for the saints of God's people. Have you ever prayed for the sins of your brothers and sisters? Have you ever prayed for the sins of your children? Have you ever prayed for the sins of your grandchildren? Why? Because you love them and you want them to be in a right relationship with God. That's what Daniel's doing and that's what we should do. Number four, genuine prayer hungers for God and his righteousness. The whole point of prayer is a relationship. It's a right relationship with God where we submit ourselves to holy God and his purposes. God demonstrates that he is right when he keeps his promise to judge sin and sinners. God always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. Genuine prayer petitions God to forgive and take action for his own glory, not because of our goodness. We don't ever ask God to do what we ask him to do because we deserve it. You know what we deserve? Hell. We deserve separation. We have been given a relationship because of his mercy and on that basis and his grace we come before him. And lastly, God always answers prayer. I know people say, well, I didn't get the answer I wanted. That's a blessing. (laughs) The number of times I have asked for things and not gotten them and I was really disappointed. I said, Lord, if you love me, you'd really give me this. The Lord says, no. Because you are foolish and you're asking for something that I know in 10 years is going to break your heart or your back or both, I said no. And 10 years later, I go, thank you, Lord, thank you that you said no, right? So God always answers prayer, but in his time, his way for his glory. Okay, next week, Lord willing, we will be in the last half of Daniel 9, which is the most detailed, complex prophecy in Scripture. The history of Christianity could rest on these prophetic words in the last half of Daniel 9. It is utterly intriguing. So if the Lord wills, I hope to see you then. I love you. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.